Now that'll mess up a preacher getting up. <laughs> Nothing like him. It's our God. It's our Jesus. Greater than all of our faults, all of our failures, greater than all the things in the world. And we're going to hear a little bit about that today. I want you to turn with me again. Man, I'm so excited to be here. The worship our risen Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We began last week going through the book of Ecclesiastes on the subject, the laboratory of life. We saw that Solomon, the Koaleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, wrote to us. He wrote to the world. It's not written to a specific church or to a specific tribe. It was written for the world to hear. Anytime we stand as a father or mother or a pastor or a deacon or Sunday school teacher or coach or whatever we do, as Matt prayed a moment ago, what we must do is we must present our words as those that are the Lord's. And I'm not saying try to make our words sound like him, but his words must come through us so that when we speak, it is thus saith the Lord. Not our opinions, not our values, not our pre-understanding. What does God say? What does God say about our life? Solomon introduces us into his laboratory. And it's a laboratory of life, of of balancing and, and trying to put one thing against another. And he puts forth a hypothesis and he goes through in his thesis of Ecclesiastes this writing to the assembly saying, what is the best? What is better than all the rest? Is it this life? Is it this world? There's a very famous term called carpe diem, a a Latin phrase that we have held on to in American society. And it literally means seize the day. To try to milk every last ounce of sunshine. You know, you've experienced it if you spent all that exorbitant amount of money to spend a day at Walt Disney World. You want to get the last drop out of that day. The last ride, the last little trip, the last thing. I mean, from, from, I I remember going from can to can't at that place. Vacation, you want to get that last meal in or that that last walk on the beach before you get in your vehicle and come home. Seizing the day. But I would proffer to you today that if we're going to speak in Latin phrases, it ought to not be carpe diem. But apprehender veritatum, which instead of seizing the day, It means to seize the truth. For the temporal things, and we will see as we 
we meander through these chapters of Ecclesiastes that seizing the day often leaves us empty and void of any true joy. Remembering now, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer uses the word vanity 38 times. It's the singular word used the most throughout this short book. Vanity. Vanity, which literally means emptiness or that which vanishes quickly with nothing left behind. Last week we evaluated the beginning in the first 11 verses and looked at the teacher and the students and the subject of profit and loss, meaning and misery, fullness and futility. We looked at the setting where over and over again, 29 times, he uses the, the words and we begin today by looking at under the sun, that which is below eternity, that which is in our realm of living. He speaks of under heaven or under the sun many, many times to draw a conclusion that there is a separation between that which is temporal and that which is eternal. But today we look at Possible conclusions from the lab. Possible conclusions from the lab. Vanity or victory. Every day we have choices. Will we live in the vanity of this world or will we be encapsulated in submission to the victory that is Christ Jesus? Solomon, as an old man, looks back over his life as we begin these various, and today is kind of finishing up on the introduction, but we'll begin by looking at very specific labs, very specific tests of where he will say, is this better than this? But today we still are drawing it in at the very wide realm of vanity which he said is just vexation of spirit, emptiness. That popping bubble that leaves no residue. Or will it be victory? Look with me in verse 12. Once again, he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, he was not bragging. He was not trying to brag. He was simply stating his position in writing this letter. He said, I was the preacher, and the preacher, me, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail, this miserable existence that I seem to be living hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. Now let me begin by looking at the scope of study. When you begin a lab, when you begin any specific work to find out, then you must narrow your parameters. You can't look at every subject in the world. You must be very specific to the topic that you are studying. And so we must understand the scope. Of our study. First of all, he tells us that we are to seek and to search. Verse 13 I gave my heart 
to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. I've heard people for decades say, well, I believe in Jesus. But they never read their Bible, they never pray, they never attend a small group to study to show themselves approved unto God. They are comfortable with a vain existence in their mind of there may be a God somewhere. But I'm telling you today, as we begin this study, we must set our hearts to truly seek and to search out that which God has for us. The problem is that too many of us are walking around blind and cannot see where we're going. We do not want to hear what God has to say, for we're afraid that it might impede our privilege or our enjoyment. How many times have you shared with someone who is caught in the ravages of sin? You shared the love of Christ and the victory that can be found in him. And they say, well, I want to, but I don't know if I'm ready to give this up. I don't know if I'm ready to quit doing A, B, C, D, whatever it may be. And the truth is, and what Solomon will ultimately tell us through this letter is, there is only one thing you have to give up. To truly understand the scope of who God is and that is yourself or sin. When we lay ourselves on the altar of God. When the Bible tells us that we are to to submit ourselves to his lordship. When he says I beseech you. Listen. He said I don't beseech you by swords and by staffs. I do not come at you with weapons. He said I beseech you by the mercies of God. That you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let me put it in the words of a man that is probably the most misunderstood man in, ever in existence. This man is believed to be the most loving, kind. He understands my heart. He understands my wants. And when I set my heart to a worldly desire, I claim God just wants me to be happy. I got news for you. That man, Jesus, said, unless you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you will have no part with me. Hear me, church, the days of walking with one foot in the world and one foot in the church must come to an end if you want victory. You want victory in your family? Be firmly planted in Christ. You want victory on the job? Be firmly planted in the center of God's will. You want joy everlasting? Then place your hope, faith, and trust in the one who can do something about it. Solomon, the preacher, says, I gave my heart. I gave my heart to seek and to search out. What does that mean? Seek literally means to study. He said, my heart studied that which I wanted to learn. Search means to explore. He said, I did whatever it took. I I looked in books. I read all kinds of literature. I read what secularists wrote. I wrote what historians wrote. I read everything that I could read. 
I sought out by going places and seeing things. People are chasing their tail around the world trying to find fulfillment. When all they have to do is kneel before a holy God. Now, I love to travel. I love the beauty of this world, the creation that God has blessed us with. Man, beautiful days where the sun is, is blazing with the most brilliance of color as it begins to set in the west. Or when it comes up early in the morning over a dove field or through the woods. To hear turkeys gobble, to see the dew on the golf course, to simply walk outside and know, listen, I know the pollen may be driving you crazy and it wears you out that you got to wash your car. But look, that's God's order of nature. When you see that pollen again, that means God still got control of the seasons, Right? And I think he has a sense of humor because the way the seasons go in Georgia. You know, today it'll be midsummer, and by Thursday it may be late winter. Who knows? But the Lord keeps us hopping. The, the writer says we, he said, I seek and search out by Wisdom. You see, if we're going to seek, we're going to study, if we're going to search or explore the scope of what life's meaning really is, then first of all, we've got to examine it honestly. We've got to be honest in our examination. You see, too often we fudge our numbers. To make them fit what we want. You know who we like to hang around with? We like to hang around people who are like-minded. Who will not oftentimes truly be honest with us. We want, we want people to tell us what we want to hear. That's why America is upside down in debt. Because people say, oh, you can afford it. when No, they can't. When the world tells them that, oh, everybody else has it, you deserve it. No, you don't. When we hear the world say, say seize the day, listen to what you want, do what you want. You don't answer to anybody. You're sovereign in and of yourself. You're a sovereign citizen. You don't have to listen to the police. You don't have to listen to the pastor. You don't have to listen to your parents. I've got news for you. You may refuse to bow your head, bend your knee, or even say yes, ma'am, in this world. But I got news for you. There's a day coming when you're going to. You can live in denial all you want. But we must realize examining the truth honestly, we will begin to see. What did he say in verse 13? All things. I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things. He wanted to really grasp life. He wanted to grasp life. Have you ever seen a kid, once they get a little older, and should I say a child, a kid's a baby goat, but a child, when they get a little, just old enough to start becoming very inquisitive, and I've read somewhere that a child will learn more from birth to seven years old 
than everything they'll learn combined from that age till death. Think about all that you learn at that age. And children are very inquisitive. I can't tell you how many pencils and pens and things like that that I would find in pieces because my children would want to know how it worked. How does this? And so it'd be torn apart. And all of us have been inquisitive in life. We look at something. It's not, we're not satisfied with just the fact that we're, we want to know how it works. We want to understand why things are like they are. We're always trying to figure somebody out, aren't we? You say, no, I done got old enough. I don't care. Yeah. You'll stand around with your buddy and say, you know what? I, I can't figure her out. Or we'll stand around and we'll meet somebody and they're a little, little quiet, so automatically we think they're standoffish. Truth is, they're just quiet. They're not as loud as we are. But we stand around and say, boy, they're hard to figure out. Well, why are you trying to figure them out? You don't know how they tick. You don't know what's going on in their life. Truth is, we do that. We never examine our own hearts. We need to examine all things honestly. But in doing so, in this... And this is where Solomon went wrong in his life. We must think biblically. There is a way to think biblically about all things. All things. We as Baptists, Georgia Baptists, Southern Baptists, we believe as a whole in the inerrant, infallible, verbal, plenary inspiration of God. All of those fancy terms simply means we believe every single word of this is Jesus Christ spoken by the Holy Ghost to men and women who pinned it down over many millennia. And that it all agrees with one another, it's infallible, and in being plenary, we have all of it we're going to get. That's important. Because we have a lot of people today wanting to say it's another gospel and I've got a new revelation from God. God's told me something. He showed me something. I'm going to tell you, if he didn't show you out of them 66 books, you ate too much pizza last night. We must, in our scope of study, We must think biblically. So when teenagers, you start thinking about dating somebody, it shouldn't be whether they like to listen to this person or watch this or play this or do that. But what does God say about it? It drives me crazy. I see teenagers sometimes and they're dating somebody new. And I say, oh, you got a new boyfriend? Yeah. I said, well, that's cool. She's pretty. Yeah. Boy, he's handsome. He's strong. Yeah. Are they saved? Well, I don't know. Well, why are you so giddy about somebody you don't even know whether they're going to heaven or not? And you proclaim Jesus. Are you ready if God is leading and if he's leading? Are you ready to spend your life with someone that you don't know You'll see an eternity. And so I will dumb it down a little bit. Where do they go to church? Oh, no. 
Why haven't you asked them? I don't know. What do you know? I don't know. All that nervous laughter because we've all done the same thing. We've all done the same thing. What I'm telling you is in dating, when, and, and if, if you're like me, uh, every time it seems like I've ever had a job offer, I had two at the same time. It was never just, you know, we want God to write it in the clouds, don't we? We want to see if the fleece is wet or if the fleece is dry. We want to see a cloud. And, and remember now, God didn't put this big thunderhead, this supercell hanging over Haifa uh, uh, outside of that little port area where the, uh, Mount Carmel is. When, and, and Elijah didn't even go look, did he? It said he put his head between his knees and he began to pray and he kept sending his servant out. And the last time he came back, he said, hey, Elijah, there's this little bitty cloud. I don't know if there's anything to it. It's only, it's only about the size of a man's hand. He said, get up. We got to go. God's in it. We've got to think biblically. What, what does God say? What does God? And, and the problem is, well, I don't think God has it. Read. You may be surprised. What God has to say. He said, I will seek and to search all things with my heart. This is the scope of study. We must seek it. We must search it. And so right now, as we begin this study, open our hearts, open our heads and say, God, what do you want me to know? Life is worth living. When we see him for who he is. Now, second of all, I want us to see our purview of study. Now we're drawing it into us. Purview means our limit of competence or our range of vision. If I were to look out today, I would say that Ben has a purview of the law. That's his purview. That's what he studied in school. That's his limit of, and when I say limit, I don't mean he can't do other things, but that's his focus. That's his competence. If I want to know something about legal matters, I have all the confidence I can go to talk to him. We have many police officers here today. That's your purview. You understand the law. And uh, Tyler and I was sitting around yesterday and somebody was asking him about, well, whether they, whether it's a misdemeanor or felony and and he said, look, it's, it's kind of up to the officer. How you treat the officer, what you do, we have a range of things we can do. It's your purview. It's what you can do in that situation. Some of us know all about ball. We know all about other things. But I want us to see what our purview of life is and see Solomon's. He said in verse 13 that he gave his heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. And he said, this sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. He said, my purview is life is hard. Would anybody agree with that? Life's hard. If you've ever had a kidney stone, life's hard. Huh? If you've ever raised children... You would agree, life is hard. If you've ever had to pay bills, 
you would agree, life is hard. If you've ever had diabetes, if you've ever faced cancer, if you've ever lost someone, you would agree, life is hard. But as we will see this unfold, it's a gift of God. Life's a gift. Life's a gift, church. Today, we have the privilege to stand in his building, which we dedicated to him, and worship a risen Savior who is Christ the Lord, and with all confidence of truth, biblically and experientially in our heart, cry out, Oh God, how great thou art. Life is hard, but it's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's not a gift from our government. It's not a gift of other nations. It's not a gift of evolution. It's a gift from the Creator. When God spoke it into existence, and He took clay and dirt and dust, and He formed This body, this lifeless form in his image, God and God alone breathed life into man. God did it. You see, the world wants to tell you that it started with a goo that went through the zoo that ended up as you. But the truth is, it started with in the beginning, God. And it will end with God. And everything in between, when it looks like the world has Put off its axis. God has not lost control. Wednesday night, prayer meeting, Bible study, crowd, we've been going through eschatology, study of end times and things like that. We've gone through the, the seals and we're going into the seventh seal, opening up and the trumpet start and all this, all during this one little seven year period. And the one thing I take away from it every week is the awesomeness of God. However it It unfolds, and I have my theories on that, but I can't fully tell you that is absolutely the way it's going to happen, but I can read you what God's Word says, and what I do know is, however it unfolds, God's going to be over it all, and God's going to control it. See, life is hard, but it's a gift of God, and so what we must do in our purview is we must examine everything through a Christian worldview. And here it is. That life was perfectly given, right? We believe in creationism. That is the first. uh, Listen, if you do not base your Christian worldview on creationism, that God created it all, then your entire Christian worldview crumbles. It's got to start with God. You've got to start with a designer. You've got to start with uh, the very explicit morality that has passed upon man, the existence of an absolute truth and a moral compass that comes from the fact that God spoke it, God is holy, and so therefore creation knows 
That there's an absolute truth, even though they would say it's subjective. We understand life is hard, but in this gift, it was perfectly given. Have you ever been just clicking along in life and everything's just right on, man? You're reading your Bible and you're praying, and man, you're loving your wife and you're petting a dog and everything's good, and then all of a sudden, something goes sideways, you blow a tire and you kick the dog and you yell at your wife, and everything goes haywire. See, the problem is, though it's perfectly given, it's personally corrupted. We have what is known as the imputed sin, the Adamic sin that because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, sin passed upon all mankind. It is so ironic that the book we call the beginning, Genesis, literally is more about death Overall, Now, the biggest truth is God created it, but man messed it up. And God gave life, but then we see an Adam died, and Eve died, and Cain and Abel died, and, and, and all these over and over and over and over, they died. It's personally corrupted, but then in our own personal nature. And that sin nature that passed from our mamas and daddies that we love and we put on Facebook. Hey, I know everybody else loves their parents, but mine's the best. The truth is, they're messed up too. They were messed up. Everybody was born into sin except for Jesus. That's it. He was born of the incorruptible seed. And so it's perfectly given, personally corrupted, but we've got to grasp the the wonderful news that is Easter, that is this season, that is every day of a believer's life, and that is that this life has been passionately redeemed. Now, I do not mean to just broadcast this, this redemption over the crowd of humanity in a way that, hey, everything's going to come out in the wash. And God loves us so much, God understands. Because if you have ever went to a funeral where someone got up and spoke and said, listen, I love my friend, I love my family, but I need to tell you they died and went to hell. I want to hear about that. Because I've never been to one yet where I heard that. But the Bible tells us there's more dying and going to hell than there are going to heaven. Jesus said that, by the way. Not Paul, not Peter. Jesus said that. That ought to break our heart. And we ought to get out of this idea. because Here's why we accept this whole idea of Unitarianism, really. That all roads ultimately lead to one and God just loves everybody. So everybody's going to heaven. We do that to justify why we're not willing to study and why we're not willing to share. Because it's hard to tell somebody you're a sinner. But it's needed. It's needed. Because until people realize their lostness, they'll never understand the need for salvation. And so we understand that Jesus Christ came to this world because of the Father's love and died on a cross to judge sin, the power and the penalty of sin, and it is through his blood we're redeemed and no other way. Church, hear me. No other way. You cannot be good enough. 
Can't be wealthy enough. This whole book is about that. Vanity or victory? The world or Jesus? But as we heard, sung just a few weeks ago, as for me, give me Jesus. Amen? Give me Jesus. When the rod's knocking in the car, give me Jesus. When the carpet is frayed around the end and we need new furniture, give me Jesus. When it looks like we've got to take that money that we wanted to save up and go on vacation and we've got to spend it on something, hey, Give me Jesus. When I'm laying in a hospital bed and I don't know if I can take the pain, hey, I still believe. Give me Jesus. That's where we've got to get to. Do you know I, I have come to believe Satan doesn't hit us the hardest when we are down and out as he does when we're up and coming, when things are good, when we got a little extra cash, when things are, our health is the best and, and we, can, we can spend more time doing the other things that Satan wants us to put our attention on. You see, our purview often is life's hard, but I'll do the best I can. Your best Your best will not measure up. Isaiah said, your best is like filthy, stinking, putrid rags that are left over from open wounds. That would go in a hazmat bag and be incinerated. You know what we are? We're the fig tree that has all the pretty leaves. And no figs. That's who we are apart from Jesus Christ. Without him, we are hopeless, helpless, and there is no future without him. Life is hard. But let us grasp in our range of vision, hey, it's still a gift from God. Sin is what makes it hard. Jesus is is what makes it worth living. Right? What's the song say? I quoted part of it a while ago, Because He Lives. Life is what? It's worth the living. It's worth it when it feels like all your friends have betrayed you. I got news for you. With David, Ahithophel betrayed him. Joab turned on him. All through the Bible, people turned away. Jeremiah's own people called him a traitor for telling them the truth. He said, life's still worth living because he lives. Daniel, Daniel said, life's worth living. I'll still pray to him. Ananiah, Azariah, Mishael said, life is worth living. If I burn up in that fire, it's still been worth living because I live it for him. And you know what they found out? Because they believed that in their heart, they didn't just say it with their mouth. They not only got to pray to him, they got to walk with him for a little while. You see, that's where we don't realize it's in the midst of the fiery furnaces of life when we will experience Jesus the most obvious. Paul said, it was at my weakest 
Jesus spoke through him, the Holy Spirit, and says, Paul, when you are at your weakest, that's when I am strong. My grace is sufficient. Our purview of study, we see in verse 14. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Here again, under the sun, under the sun. I've seen all the works that are under the sun. Now, don't, don't discredit Solomon as being just so worldly he couldn't understand. Remember, God gave him wisdom. And it was when he chose to exercise it. And what he saw is that here in this verse, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. What he is telling us is there's nowhere to hide from God. There's nowhere to hide. Look at the next slide. There's nowhere to hide. So we can either one of two things. One, we can run from God and run to the world. This is what he said in verse 14. I have seen all the works that are done and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. We can run from God and run to the vanity that is the world. And we can prop ourselves up with the, 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 the temporary feel goods. And it may not be opioids. It may not be drugs and alcohol. It may not be pornography and all the really dirty sins that we see. Hey, it may be that you are a workaholic. It may be that you're trying to build up this and it may have a good face on it. It may be that you do more than everybody else and you want people to say, oh, you do so much good and all these kinds of things. And what you're saying is it's about me and it's not about the Lord. That we want to be a really good parent and so we enroll our kid in every possible thing. And we'll bring them to church if none of those other things get in the way. Summer's coming, church. Are we going to check out or check in? Is he going to be just as real to us come June 17th and July the 9th as he is on April 1st. Because I got news for you. He said, I'll either be your Lord of all or I won't be Lord at all. We can either run from God and run to the world or we can run to God and away from the world. One I think did this better than anybody in the Bible was Joseph in the Old Testament. Man, it just seemed like everywhere he turned, it was a problem, wasn't it? Can you imagine just for a minute if that was your life? Everybody you love just about, your buddies, your friends, your brothers, your sisters, half of them wanted to kill you. And the ones that felt sorry for you and didn't literally want you dead wanted to at least profit off of you. So they sold you. We talk a lot about human trafficking. Joseph was trafficked. His brothers sold him into slavery. They threw him in a pit. And then they come by, people come by and they, they sold him. And he ends up in Egypt. And then a woman falsely accuses him of rape. That just happened to be a powerful woman that could get something done. And Joseph started doing time for something. 
Not only that he did not do, but was not even in the very intent and depth of his heart to do. So when you suffer, remember the words of the New Testament. If you're going to do it, do it for righteousness sake. And he kept looking to God. And then his friends that he he helped out in jail forgot him. But God never did. And if there's ever been a verse that I've clung to through life, is what he told his brothers when they thought he was going to kill them. You see, the world expects for us to act like them. But what Joseph said in chapter 50, verse 20 of the book of Genesis, you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. Listen, church, you may be in the midst of some of the greatest turmoil and trials and tribulations in your life, but take hope. Life is hard, but God is bigger. God's got a plan for you. Or you wouldn't still be here. I don't know about you, but that blesses my heart. It makes me want to run even faster to him. Our purview in verse 15. He says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. You ever heard anybody say, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make resolutions. I'm going to quit this, I'm going to start that, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to eat right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to be better, and I'm not going to do these things anymore. And yet, so many times, our prison system is full of people that it is not their first visit. Because they keep trying to get out and do it themselves. Themselves, themselves, one of them. The problem is, listen, we're futile without God. Man is futile. We, we, he says, can, can a man number the hairs on his head? Dale can. <laughs> he said, can you change the leopard spots? I love to watch that Safari Live. Any of you watch? Y'all, y'all don't watch anything that's educational. I'm old. I like educational stuff. Scott says, I, ain't go- I went and saw him. I went over there. Him and Betsy. and Man, y'all want to see something cool. Y'all need to see their pictures of where they went on safari. But I love to watch. And, and the one, there'll be a bunch of cheetahs out there and they'll show the lions and they'll show the warthogs and they'll show all the hippopotamus or is it hippopotami? But anyway, the cool thing is they keep looking the whole, and it's live. They may come on tonight, but they're always looking for a leopard. Now, cheetahs got the spots that looks like a leopard, but they got these black lines that come down around their eyes. But a leopard doesn't, and their spots are different than a cheetah. And they're different than a bobcat. You say, well, bobcat doesn't have spots. You've never seen them when they're little. And then all the other cats that are marked, it's different. Can we change the stripes of a tiger? Tell me, in your mind, unless you're a scientist, is the zebra white with black stripes or black with white stripes? Is the tiger orange with black stripes or black with orange stripes? The truth, what I'm telling you is, we don't have control over that. And the world, the scientists that want to eliminate, remember, we've got to refer back 
to beginning. God created it. Man got to name it, have dominion over it. We talked a little bit about this Wednesday night. But the truth is, God's the one that created it. Now, you got to wonder. And when I get to heaven, these are the kind of things that I think is going to be cool. And maybe we'll all know it, but just humor me for a minute. Don't you want to just get to heaven and say, God, now explain to me again why you made a platypus. Did, was they leftover parts and you just kind of stuck them together? And what about a three-toed sloth? I mean, really? They just hang out all day. They can't, they're the slowest creature on earth. What's up with that? Lord, how can an eagle and a hawk be so beautiful and a buzzard so ugly? Lord, God's got a reason. And when you are a Christian science, uh, scientist, you begin to understand the fullest meaning of God's purpose in all of it. Just like the pollen and the bees and all the things that God causes to the sea. Man, is few, we can't do it without God. We can't create water. We can't create oxygen. We can't create these things. God has to do it. We have no chance without God. But man can be fruitful in Christ. Verse 15, that which is crooked cannot be made. We can't fix ourselves. We can't turn over a leaf. The first storm it blows through, it's going to blow us right back in to our trends, our traditions, our learned behaviors, our, uh, our, our self-indulging, enabling mechanisms, we'll fall right back into it if we don't run to Jesus. Man can be fruitful, though, in Christ because he is our change agent. I think the deepest question poised to man and poised by a man, maybe, it's found in Job 14, 14. Right smack dab in the middle of the greatest trial and tribulation possibly ever known to a man. Job, who had lost everything. Not only had he lost everything, he was miserable with his own health, with sores and boils and all these things. And in the midst of all that, his friends are betraying him and they're telling him, you just, you're just rotten to the core and something's wrong with you. Job, in his purview, ponders. And he says, if a man dies, will he live again? His answer was not, yes, in the power and the authority of the great deity, Yahweh, yes. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, ah, we're too feeble-minded, we can't understand that. He said, what I... I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to wait until my change comes. And so instead of being arrogant or being self-defeating, he simply said, there is a God. There is hope. And one day the Lord, though temporally can change my situation in this life, he is going to eternally change me in his presence. He is our change agent. You want to change your life? You want to change the road you're walking? You want to go from seizing the day to seizing truth? Then you've got to understand He is our change agent. 
But then I want you to notice in verses 16 through 18. He said, I communed with my own heart. Have you ever been where you couldn't really talk to anybody about something? You're so burdened that you just, you couldn't even really say it to God. You just simply communed with your heart. You just got on your face and just, your heart cried out. Solomon cried out with his heart. He said, I communed with it. Saying, lo, I have come to a great estate. And I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. I perceived this also is vanity. This also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. The old timer said it this way. He knows too much to be any good. Sometimes people can be, they'd say, he's too smart for his own good. She's too smart for her own good. We can study to show ourselves approved unto man, or we can study to show ourselves approved unto God. You see, this world is problematic, is what Solomon is telling us. Would you agree with that? world's problematic. What are we going to do about school shootings? What are we going to do about Iraq and Afghanistan? And ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Taliban and uh, Boko Haram and all the extremists of this world. What are we going to do about human trafficking and an opioid epidemic? What are we going to do about children being raised without a father and the need for adoption and the scourge? On our society called abortion. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about people starving in this world? And puppies at the rescue shelter. What are we going to do? About dangerous roads and too much taxes. You see there's always problems. There's always problems. This world's problematic. This world can promote privilege and and sometimes we see the have and the have nots. Solomon's saying I'm a have I'm a have he said I have gotten more wisdom I have come to great estate does that mean all your problems are going to go away does it in our generation who is probably the richest person on the world in the world that we always heard about. Y'all remember? Who? And what was the big fight about Howard Hughes when he died? What was the witch wheel? There was hundreds of them because Howard Hughes was the wealthiest man. But how, how, how did he die? I mean, this guy, he created at one time the largest flying plane in the world. He didn't fly very far the spruce goose, but it flew. He was a pilot, crashed many times. He had seemed like he had defeated death at every turn. He began to produce movies, and some of you saw a movie about it. Listen, this guy was the precursor for the germaphobe 
that Michael Jackson would end up being. I mean, he wouldn't wear clothes. He wouldn't let anybody in his room. Howard Hughes went stark raving mad because he had everything he wanted. And there was nothing else to gain. You see, this world can promote privilege, but in that privilege, it becomes problematic. This world can provide pleasure. Look at a commercial for an all-inclusive resort. We'll give you all the drinks you want. You can ride jet skis and all the women are beautiful and all the men are big and strong and, and the, the weather's perfect all the time. And everything's great. All you got to do is pay us a bunch of money and you can come stay. You ain't got to mingle in with the ordinary people. You can come behind the gate and you can live however you want and nobody will know. Problem is God does. You ever got somewhere and realized God went with you on vacation? You really wanted to leave him at home. You really wanted to check him at the door. This world can provide all kinds of pleasure. But let's be honest. Let's be real honest for a minute. He said, I gave my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. And I, perce- I perceived This also is vexation, spirit. You see, there's the humanist that says man is the center of all things. All value and goodness is within us. There is no deity above us. It's all about us. There's the fatalist. One who believes in fatalism just simply says all is inevitable. There's nothing we can do to change any of it. So we might as well just roll with it. We use phrases, one that I despise with the very pit of my core, that literally cries out, I'm a fatalist. Well, it is what it is. So we don't need to love on nobody. We don't need to tell anybody that they're... They need Jesus. Jesus died for them. We don't need to reach in and rescue somebody in a burning house. We don't need to go into that schoolhouse when we've got a gun and try to stop a shooter. Just, hey, it's inevitable. Might as well let it go. That's what a fatalist believes. Those who believe in annihilationism says this really is all there is, so live it up. Because when it comes to the end, if there is some kind of heaven, you don't make it. You're just going to cease to exist. This is all there is. The greatest evangelist that we've ever known in our lifetime went to be with the Lord this week. Who preached Jesus on every continent who is the first true mass, true Bible-preaching televangelist. So don't group them all up and stereotype them. From Los Angeles to Romania and every other corner of the globe, Billy Graham said, Come, come to Jesus, just as I am. One more verse. You up in the balcony, come. Make your way down. Yes, come, come. That voice is now silent. 
my favorite, and I can't quote it, but I read this week something that is kind of my new favorite thing he said. Billy Graham said, I was asked about heaven and what heaven must be like. And he said, the only way I know to really explain it is, well, if it means, he, he said, life is going to be eternal and God wants us to enjoy the fullness of his presence and all that is good. And that if that means that my dog is there to fulfill that, then my dog will be there. How about that? Billy Graham said that. Now, it's not the gospel. But I kind of like the way it sounds. I used to be adamant. Animals don't have souls. There won't be any animals in heaven. Until I started reading over there in Revelation 6, 7, and 8 like we have on Wednesday night. And realized, you know who comes when the seals are open? A rider. And you know what they're riding on? A horse. And where were the seals open? In heaven. So there's horses in heaven. That means there's animals in heaven. Ray, bless God, if there's horses, I believe God will have us some good old dogs. I'm not sure about cats. <laughs> Christy, don't get mad at me. Listen, we can languish in this world's perception. Egoism, everything is done based on self-interest. We will help somebody if we feel like it will help us. We will be friendly to somebody if we think that, that that relationship will gain something for us. We will give something if we think we can get something in return. But listen, if we're going to be honest in our purview of study and want to understand life is more than the vanity that is this world, we want victory in Jesus, then we must look forward with a heavenly perspective. He said, I perceived his perception that this world was just vanity. But our perception, our perspective on life must be, this is not all there is. This is not all there is. As they come to the instruments. Hebrews 13 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father by me. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Church, this life is not all there is. Stop living in the temporal teasing of vanity and embrace the fullness of eternal joy that is victory. And it's only found on our face before the throne of God, through the Son, Jesus Christ. If you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, you come, come and say, Preacher, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. We'll pray with you. You need to be baptized to tell the world, I've been saved, and I want to be recognized with the body of Christ. I need to join at Esau. I just need to pray. I need to say, God, I'm saved. I've walked with you, but I've turned. It's time for revival in my life. That I give up the vanity. And my spirit has been vexed for too long. 
May I walk in the victory that is Christ. Stand and come to Jesus. Stand and come. Come to Jesus.